Welcome to episode three of my badass friends. I'm I am very excited for the first time to be live and in person with one of my badass friends, John Stone. John, how you doing? I'm great, Paul. How are you? We're staring at each other right in the face. <laughs> right it's, into uh, your soul. Right here, right uh, right into my soul. That sounds good. Um, pumped to have you. Pumped to be pushing out episode number three of, uh, I'm not going to do a whole introduction like I've done the last two episodes, but uh, really pumped to have you. So let's start where we always start. John, where are you from? So in fairness, I listened to episode one, so I knew this question was coming. And so I've been thinking about it a lot. And obviously there's the, you know, boring geographical answer that I will get to. But when I really first started talking or thinking about that question, Paul, the first thing I thought about was how lucky I am, how fortunate I am that, you know, I had a mom and dad and still have a mom and dad that found careers where they didn't have to move the four stone children around different cities, different states, different countries. Um, you know, I was born and raised in Marin County and I still live there. And I think as we kind of go deep here into my family and my friends, I think it is a big reason that my family and my friends are so incredibly close is that we did come back to Marin for whatever reasons. But um, the boring answer, I guess, is was born at Marin Health, Marin General <laughs> Hospital, Community Hospital in Kentfield, California. And for those of you who don't know, that's in Marin County. Um, and one interesting thing to me about Marin County is if you ask people where they're from and they're from Marin County, they say the county. And I think a lot of people will say the cities that they're from. And for whatever reason, we're very prideful of Marin County. And for those of you that don't know, it's located in between San Francisco and Sonoma County. It's made up of 11 cities and 300,000 people. So it's not small. It's not huge. But we're very prideful about Marin. I still think California is a great state. I know many of us don't anymore. But that's where I'm from, Paul. You said the word Marin, I don't know, maybe 14 times <laughs> in the last two minutes. Um, and I'm glad you cleared up where it is. Um, what is, uh, what's the vibe of Marin like? And I'll even lead the witness a little bit. I've done the drive across the Golden Gate Bridge and, and you do feel like you're going into a different place outside of San Francisco. Just love your your thoughts on the vibe and and also the journey to get there. So, yeah, I, I smile because I think about that drive coming across the bridge and through the Robin Williams Tunnel. And you look out over Sausalito in the bay as you come down the freeway. And look, I'm obviously biased. Um, I think Marin is incredibly special for a variety of reasons. Um, there's incredible people. There's incredible communities. There's incredible cities that make up those communities. Um, it's very much liberal. Um, it is a place that, you know, there are a number of high schools throughout the county that are all very prideful about their individual high schools. Like I said, 11 major cities, you know, major cities that kind of represent who the community becomes in terms of of what we're all about. I would say it's, it's very laid back. Um, Marin is not a place that's too busy. You know, the, you, you do have San Francisco and, and the busyness that all comes with a large city you know, six, seven, eight miles away from the county. You have, you know, then you have Napa around 40 miles north of us. And so it's kind of this unique little county that's situated between these two major tourist worldwide destinations. 
Yeah, I I think you described it perfectly. And that's, I mean, for me, that's what it feels like. It definitely feels like a little bit of a different world. So so we're going to go on a, a long journey here over your 40 some odd years One. of life. 41 um, makes me feel old. Um, but before we start jumping around, you are a, I mean, this is my opinion, but I think most people that we know would agree, you're a very um, positive, optimistic, fun-loving, high-energy person. Why? It's a great question. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, but I mean, very. For people that don't know you, yeah. I think I think we'll figure it out in the next two hours. But um, yeah, why? I, I mean, Paul, I honestly, I don't see any other way to live. Um, you know, you, you can read countless books, countless leadership books, and one that I'm sure we'll get into, you know, The Right of a Lifetime by Bob, Bob Iger. He talks about the power of optimism I feel like I've always been that way. And I definitely think it comes from my parents raising me to be that way. Um, I also think it comes from the amount of love my parents gave me. And like I said, when we started, I'm very, very, very lucky. We're all lucky if we were born into, you know, the United States of America, we were already given an advantage. But when I think about my childhood, you know, it was full of love. It was full of families and friends that I still have to this day. Um, I wasn't just raised by Mike and Kathy Stone. I was raised by a number of different individuals from neighbors to uncles, to aunts, to grandmas that all had a hand in raising me. And I think, again, I'm just grateful and, and, and fortunate that I was surrounded by optimism. So it's all I really knew. Like, did we have hardships? Like, of course, like any family, any person does. But optimism was clearly the driving force behind, you know, who I should become and who I hope that I did eventually become. All right. Interesting. So Mike and Kathy are your parents. Yep. So where are Mike and Kathy from? So we'll start with my mom. Um, so Kathy Stone was was born in Texas, didn't ra didn't wasn't raised in Texas, born in Texas. Um, now, she was, you know, a Air Force brat. So her dad was in the Air Force. So she moved around the majority of her life and you know i'll probably get some of the cities wrong i'll probably forget some but for the sake of a good podcast i'll do my best um you know she lived in louisiana in a place called natchitoches for a time you, you can try and spell that it's pretty difficult um she lived in california she lived obviously in texas louisiana she i believe had a stint in japan um and then definitely lived for a couple of years on the island of guam Wow, And so incredible stories about her and her sister, Kelly, and her father and, and Grandma Mary, who um, obviously we'll talk about had an important role in my life. But um, mom moved around a lot, eventually uh, lived on Travis Air Force Base, which is just north of Marin County um, in a town called Fairfield or city called Fairfield, um, which is where my dad, Mike, was born and raised. Um they met, I think, in the high school time frame. They were both swimmers, both swam at their high schools. Somehow came to be that they met each other, um, started dating, got married, and decided to move to Marin. Then John came out, you know, so many years later. John being you. Yes, correct. Okay, so let, let's focus on you. I, it sounds like I might want to have Kathy on the podcast at some <laughs> point um, when you said uh, all those places she lived. Um, which I'm sure shaped who she is. So go back to 
the first memories you have literally like literally not things you look at a picture and you remember the picture the actual memories and um tell me what those are um well the first one whenever i think about my childhood like for instance when you're talking about where are you from and i thought about the first house that I remember living in. I think it was the first house I lived in, which was in San Rafael. And I remember it was a brick house. And I remember there's a creek running behind it. And, and it's interesting, Paul, I probably lived there for, you know, I'd have to pressure test it with mom and dad six years. Um, and I only remember one day in all six years. I'm getting choked up because it's, you know, sad story about losing a brother, my parents losing a child. Um, and, and I bring that up because it's a memory. And I think a lot of times, you know, we talk about optimism and positivity, but a lot of times memories we have are, are sad ones or are troubling ones. I agree. And um, that day, you know, I don't remember a lot. I remember that morning and things I remember, and we can get into it if, you know, you want to get into it now, but it's, I remember my mom's reaction and, you know, I, I'll dive into it. So, so you're how old? I'm about five or six. Okay. And my other brother, Critter, is what we called him. His name's Chris. Um, Critter was two years younger than me, so he was probably three or four at the time. If your mom named him Critter, I was going to pull her off the <laughs> yeah, podcast yeah, just fair. for the record. So That's I'm glad fair. his birth name is Chris. Um, and now that I think of, I, I probably take that back. I think I was probably four and Crit was two because we were two years apart from Nicholas. Um, and Nick, back then passed away of what they called SIDS at the time or sudden infant death syndrome. And it's essentially when a child stops breathing. Um, and I just remember my mom screaming and I remember her screaming and I remember a lot of chaos in the house that morning. Um, I remember going across the street to our neighbor, Dick and Ann's house. Um, and I believe they, took Critter and I when the ambulance came. I remember that. I remember, you know, my mom, I don't know if dad was there, if he was working, I can't remember, but I remember all of that like it was yesterday. And when I think about my first few memories in life, like that's just, that's what comes up. And, you know, I'm, yeah, I get choked up about it now, but, you know, I do think going back in time, you know, with heartache and with troubling times, it brings people closer together. And is that a reason why, you know, my brothers and my sister are some of my best friends to this day? Is that why we are incredibly close to our parents? Probably not, but maybe it had something to do with it. I would imagine a factor. Uh, I, I had no idea that's what you were going to say. Um, so I appreciate you sharing. Yeah. Um, and, and we can, we can maybe circle back to it if you want, but I, I would assume you said it probably played a role, or at least was part of the total equation. I, I know you're right. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't. Uh, I, I don't get. I don't guess um, that you're right. So, um, well, let okay. So let that's pretty heavy duty for our first. I don't know <laughs> five or ten minutes. And um, you know, obviously, I'm sorry that that happened. Yeah. Um, you are the oldest of oldest of four. Okay. And you don't have to say names and all those different things, but just age range and and oldest to youngest, and just maybe a quick note on your siblings. Sure, actually, not a quick note. We have all the time in the world, so I know you're a proud older brother. Um, th you know, this could be a podcast in itself because I think the world of these three people and the adults they've become—they are, you know, three of my best friends. Like I said, um, so I'm 41. 
my brother Chris, um, or Critter, Critter, as we call him. I mean, side note, he used to sign school papers as Critter. I'm So sure it's not, you know, I would it's very too. real in high I school, would, I would you know. Too. So um, Critter turns 40 in February. So February 4th is his birthday. Then there's Maddie. Maddie was born three and a half, four years after that. So he is now 36, March 26th is his birthday. And then November 9th of 1989, the baby girl came, Haley. Um, many of my friends will say she was the best stone or is the best stone. I, I wouldn't disagree. You've met her. Um, they're incredible people. They have become incredible parents. They foster a, you know, you think I'm optimistic and passionate. Well, they're just as much the same. So it's probably a testament to mom and dad. Um, the best part about it, Paul, is, you know, Critter lives a mile and a half away from me. You know, Haley lives three miles away from me and Maddie lives, you know, the distant eight miles away from me. Um, we see each other all the time. We talk, you know, once a week, at least via text, via, you know, phone call, whatever. This past Sunday, I was with mom and dad and Haley and Maddie watching the 49er game. So we see each other all the time. And um, I talked about Marin County to start. You know, did we come back because of our family and our friends? Sure. Yeah, Marin County has a part to play in that. Um, like I said, I, I love all of them to death. I'm, I'm so incredibly proud of the people they become, the kids that they're raising. You know, I joke with my dad all the time that, you know, we'll talk about my kids, I'm sure here. Um, Brady, my my firstborn, Kelly, and my first son was or is 10 years old. And I say, you know, dad, 10 years ago, you had one grandchild. And now you fast forward 10 years and there's nine. So Stone Kids have been busy. It's amazing. Yeah. That's a little bit about them, though. So um, they're, they all live right by you. Mm -hmm. Um. As you were talking, I was trying to rack my brain through through the friends or acquaintances I have, and I can't think of anyone that has their parents and their all of their siblings living in a whatever five mile radius or whatever it is. Um, you, you said Marin might be is it, I've got to assume the family is the magnet, yeah, pulling everybody back. That's right. fair, a hundred percent fair. So what was um, okay? So you have a tight knit family. Mm -hmm. You had some trauma early on. Mm -hmm. um, let's push. Let, let's not focus on the trauma for for a second. Um, what were now? I'm going to start calling them Mike and Kathy. That we've said it a few times. <laughs> what were Mister and Mrs. Stone's priorities for you all as you were growing up? Mm. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so mom always lived by the golden rule of treat others the way you want to be treated, and we heard it time and time and time again. Um, if I think about the priorities, you know, obviously there's the obvious ones, education, that we all probably growing up here take for granted. Um, religion was very important to mom and dad in giving us a, a firm, you know, foundation of, of faith. So we were born, raised Catholic. Um, we each went to 12 years of Catholic school. So first through eighth at a private Catholic school and then a Catholic high school for four years. So to say that religion played a part in our growing up. That's absolutely true. Um, you know, friends, family was always a priority for them. And, and I say friends because they were very, very, very mindful of ensuring not only that we, you know, had a good group of friends, but that they, you know, made sure that we were hanging out with the right people. And I think we we're very fortunate, you know, when, when we talk about getting into my later years, you know, I still have probably 
15 to 20 friends from high school that I have a regular cadence of communication with. And so, you know, I think like you mentioned, having your parents and four, you know, kids living in the same, you know, Marin in the same county is rare. I, I like to think that having that many friends from high school um, that I still communicate with regularly is rare as well. And it's something I don't take for granted. So, um, you're, so you're talking to all these friends all the time, which I actually knew, I think I'm, I'm counting on them to become, uh, you know, followers of this podcast and send us into, into the stratosphere as many people as you know, no, obviously anybody that listened to episode one knows that that's not the, the priority. Um, but that had to be, I don't think, I, I can't imagine you were just born and started growing up and just became this person that was going to reach out and be proactive with all these people. Like what, what is the, what are the shaping moments that, that got you to start doing that? And I'll ask a follow-up. Is it a habit you consciously think about? Is it, is, is it in your unconscious that it happens? How does that all play out? Cause it's not easy. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely think it's a lot in my unconscious. I'm just interested in people. Um, I always have been now, I think, where does the fostering of relationships and friends come from? Um, you know, I, I look at my my mom and my dad and the families that they grow up with, especially on, on my dad's side. You know, I mentioned my mom has, has one sister that, you know, we see every once in a while. Um, my dad's side of the family that now most of them live in Napa, um, two of his brothers and one of his sisters, you know, when I talked about multiple people that raised me, they definitely had a hand in raising the stone children. They all have children of their own. They all, you know, have kids of their own now. And so when I think about, you know, the stone family, we were forced is the wrong word, but we we're forced to have strong knit relationships with cousins. And we were always taught that, you know, for instance, there's a reason that I take my kids to my cousin's kids, football games and homecoming and volleyball matches is one, we want to pass those beliefs on to our kids. Kelly and I do, I know. And, and I look at the relationships I have with a lot of my cousins and I think it's rare. You know, I, I think it's rare that every birthday I have, you know, I'm getting texts from all my different cousins from across the United States that they know it's my birthday. You know, they know about big milestones in my life and our kids' lives. And we're really vested in each other's well-being. And it's something that, mom and dad absolutely fostered. And it probably comes, I know on my dad's side of the family, it comes from his mother, who you and I have talked about a lot. Grandma Marie, she lived till she was 103, 102, 102 or 103. Amazing. Yeah, the matriarch of the Stone family, the role model for, I think, every single one of us, um, and someone that was instrumental in teaching us about you know, work ethic and passion and friends and family first and sacrifice that all stems from her. And she, she obviously led by example. Mm -hmm. She did. Um, I mean, look, I, I, I think, so she was a nurse. She was a nurse at queen of the Valley hospital in Napa, California. Um, and anyone that knows a nurse or has a nurse in their family. And now I have, you know, a grandma, I have a mom, you know, Kathy, as you like to call her, uh, was a pediatric cardiac ICU nurse for 39 years. Um, and, you know, earmark that. I definitely want to come back to that because I learned a lot about family and friendship and what success looks like in life in general from my mom's career. Um, and now, you know, we'll 
I'm sure talk a lot about Kelly, but Kelly's going to nursing school. And so anyway, if you have nurses in your life, you know, they are a special breed of human sure. um, from a work ethic, from a sacrifice, from a servant leadership. Um, once a nurse, always a nurse, as my mom says. And so I think, you know, Grandma Marie, um, who was a nurse, really sacrificed a lot for her kids. And she had five kids that she raised in Napa without a husband. You know, her husband, George, passed away um, when my dad, I believe, was eight, 10, oh, very, yeah. very young, yeah. right? And Grandma Marie worked full-time as a nurse. Um, those kids, you know, George and my dad and Rod and Bernie and, and Patty, they were forced to grow up quick and they talk about it. And they take, they talk about taking responsibilities. They talk about leaning on each other and they talk about not really taking advantage of the situation they had of, you know, a lot of times not having a parent in the house um, because they respected grandma so much. And so I learned a tremendous amount from grandma and, you know, she was, like I said, the matriarch of the family, but alive till, you know, well into her hundreds and, you know, was a spry hundred year old, you know, hundred year old still going to the warrior game or the giants games. And she could tell you who was starting for the giants on a Wednesday afternoon at 101, like just an incredible human being. So there are, we're going to, we're going to hone this thing back to you here shortly, but I, I think the family stuff is setting a nice foundation, but I see a couple uncommonalities. Um, one is, is what we talked about the proximity and kind of this pulling of the family together but the other one that sticks out to me as I listen to you is the effort that goes into the family unit. And so you reference going to your cousin's kid's game. Um, and I'm thinking about all the times I've had family or friends say to me, I should text more often. I should, I should call more often. This is so great. We got together once a year. This is great. What, uh, you know, it's deliberate and it, and it takes work, as mm -hmm. I said a second ago, but what do you say to all of us that maybe are, maybe we want to foster this and are nervous or unclear about how, and, and you've watched multiple generations do it where it's almost like the DNA of the, of the larger family, but what, what's your advice to all of us out there? I mean, I, you know, I don't want to sound cliche. There's a number of cliche answers I could give to that, Paul. It, it's it really, it just takes, you said, it takes deliberate effort. And my question to anyone that was facing that is why not? Like what, what, what are you waiting for? Why would you not reach out to a family member? Why would you not bury a grudge with a friend? Like the whole cliche life is too short. Like it comes and slaps us in the face from time to time sure. and gives us perspective and unfortunately, that perspective only lasts so long. And then we're so adapt to falling back into our normal habits of, you know, not reaching out to family and not reaching out to friends and look like guilty of it too. I, I have a number of friends that will tell me like, you know, John, you, we don't see you enough. John, you know, we, we haven't heard from you for a while. So it's not this perfect, you know, relationship that I'm able to go foster with everyone I come in contact with. But I, I do make a deliberate effort to try and drive that with my friends and with my family, because I know our kids are watching. And I think that is one of the driving forces for me is we all want to set good examples for our kids. Kids, you know, adapt the behaviors that they see us do, 
right? It's undeniable. Sure, sure. And so if you're not reaching out to your family, if you're not reaching out to your friends and they're not seeing you do that, do you think there's any chance they're going to do it? Like, probably not. And so that would be my advice is, you know, if you care about your kids, yeah. reach out to friends and family, you know? Do you see, we'll get to your kids later, but do you see them starting to show these behaviors? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it, it's, it's clearly become just part of the, part mm -hmm. of the culture. Okay. So let's, let's bring it back to uh, appreciate all the color and, and your family. I mean, I know they're amazing, but again, as I've said multiple times now, part of me doing this is because I benefit so much. It's for selfish reasons. So um, what kind of student were you? Not a good one, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> That's not why I'm asking. Yeah. Just for the record, I really don't know. I mean, well, you know, tongue in cheek. I, and, and yeah. Let's let's focus on young John Stone. I'm not talking about the glory days in college or anything yet. Oh, just young. As a, okay. As a, so as a young young puppy. Um, still not a good one, Paul. <laughs> it's uh, you know, if you guys listen to the first podcast, Paul's good friend Anthony talked about being the almost valedictorian. Yeah. Right. I was like, oh, great. I'm going to follow that a couple podcasts later and. True story, the closest I ever came to becoming, you know, the almost valedictorian was I dated one in high school. And nice. That's as close as I got. Um, I mean, look, my my parents definitely emphasized school and, and it's something I fought back on a lot. I, I did just enough to get by, Paul. And it's definitely one thing I look back on that I wish I would have just applied myself a little bit more. But, you know, I, I see a little bit of it in in my son, Brady, who's now 10, what's important to him is sports and friends. And I think like, I look back and that's what was important to me as a young kid. Like I wanted to be with my friends, I wanted to be doing sports and school came third in that, you know, triumphant and that's okay. Um, I do think it's one thing, like I said, I wish I could go back and would have applied myself more, but it is what it is. It got me to where I ended up today, which I'm proud of um you know school i liked being in school you know especially in high school and college i never you know was someone that hated going to school ever i, I liked you know I, I think that one thing hopefully we find is that i enjoy being around people and that's where i saw them was at school now like i said did i apply myself to the best of my ability probably not um it's just something that i deal with looking back so when when you think about it, yeah. you're you're far from alone on thinking you should have applied <laughs> yourself more in school. I I mean there are at least two of us in this room that that feel that way. But when you when you I don't know if you use the word regret. I don't remember. But you you yeah. know you you regret that. Why? You, you're successful. You're happy. You have a great family. I, I think that's the right question to ask. And maybe regret is the wrong word. Um, because going back to, you know, we want the best for our kids. And I look back and I hope that I will push Brady and Kira harder to really focus on getting good grades and trying to impress upon them why it's important. Not that mom and dad didn't do that to me, but I mean, God knows they, they pushed sure. all of us. I was just someone that just never, it never clicked for me until high school. And I remember, you know, junior year of high school and being like, God, you know, I'm getting C's and B's and like, is that really the best I can do? And I remember thinking that. Um, and at that point, you know, you're starting to apply for colleges and it's almost too late. And, you know, I love where I ended up at college. I love the high school that I went to and high school was hard. Like I said, it was a, you know, four year private Catholic high school and, you know, they definitely pushed us 
and, you know, tried to prepare us for college. And you could feel that if you weren't applying yourself. And so, like you said, do I regret it? Um, yeah, I probably do. Why? I don't really know if I could give you an honest answer as to why. I just know that that's how I feel now looking back. So how did you think about um, wh whether you were getting A's or B's or a C here and there as you move through elementary, middle school? I'm, and I'm trying to get into those formative years mm -hmm. where our brains mm -hmm. are pliable and we're, we're who knows what kind of person we're going to become. Um, how did you feel about doing really well versus really poorly? And what how did you react? So not that you did really poorly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. You gotta see. What did that mean when you were 12 years old? Nothing. And maybe that was the problem. I do remember one time, Paul, and it's it's pretty funny when you think back. So, you know, when I was at St. Isabella's, which was first through eighth grade, um, obviously a Catholic high school, and our head priest would come into the classroom at the end of the year when report cards were given out, and he would call you up to the front of the room, and he would open up your report card, and he would make some comments about him in front of all your peers. And I remember him maybe on a few occasions, a few years saying like, oh, John, you should really look to get this and this grade up in front of all your peers. And like, I, you, you think about if that were to happen in today's world, sure, lawsuits and whatnot that crazy parents would probably file. But I remember that moment still sticks out in my memory because it meant something probably, right? And I remember the kids, you know, a few of my good friends, like never hearing those comments from the priest. And um, it is what it is. And I just, you know, it sticks in my craw a little bit. Sure. I mean, that's tough. It's <laughs> yeah. a little bit like life though. A yeah, lot of, a no, lot of us no have to stand in front of the scoreboard. What, um, okay. So your parents sound amazing. Obviously the family had a vibrant culture. What was the, um, give us some details on the, the level of discipline that was going on in the stone house. Um, yeah. So look, Mom and dad were definitely, um, they did not rule with an iron thumb. And, and I say that because they gave us a lot of freedom to make mistakes, <clears throat> make mistakes, get into trouble. Um, and my friends, when we'd be in college, we would talk about it. You know, I was, you know, the Stone House was one of the few houses in our friend group that friends would sleep over at our house. You know, even at a young age, kids would come over to our house. And it's, because my parents had a way of, of disciplining me that was, you know, very much, you know, would I get grounded? Would I get sent to my room? Of course, right? Was I getting in trouble as a kid? Yes. Um, the one thing I will say, when I look back and I think about mom and dad and when they disciplined me the hardest, it is undeniable that if I got, you know, a bad grade here or there, or if I you know, got into a fight with a kid at school or an argument and they found out about it. Nothing mattered more to them. And they didn't discipline me harder than if I was cruel to my siblings. Being mean, especially to Critter, that was when I would see the discipline hit the hardest. And so when we talk about fostering the relationships between the siblings, um, I just remember mom and dad like never being more mad at me than if I was being mean to Critter or Maddie or Haley, but Critter and I were so close in age, you know, had such similar, you know, age friend groups that, you know, we would fight like any siblings do. Sure. But I remember that being the hardest discipline, that being taking things away from us. Um, mom, you know, obviously the more conservative type was always one to 
limit the amount of TV we watched, limit the amount of video games we could do. Did we have those things? Absolutely. But there was definitely a mindfulness with them on limiting the amount of TV and things like that that we were doing. And those were the levers that they could take away, right? And so when I think back about the discipline, it was never that strict. Like I don't think back and remember being grounded all the time or doing chores all the time. I remember them having, you know, very harsh conversations with us and really trying to treat us like adults. That sticks out to me. But <laughs> the one thing that always sticks out is just if you were mean to your sibling, like that was the worst kind of discipline you could expect. I love that. And I, yeah. I think it's um, I don't know how many people would really answer that way, but it's a it's not surprising, but I am a little surprised. Mm -hmm. and it's obviously that the respect they demand of mm -hmm family and all these things, you know, you're starting to see the ingredients and the recipe start to take shape. And yeah, you know, I don't know, we're, we're at like age seven. Um, you're going to take this as a, as a non-compliment, but I've said maybe a dozen times in my life, talking to other friends about you that I've, and I've, I apologize in advance, but I've called you a sneaky, good athlete. I don't even know if you've <laughs> ever heard me say that, which is not really fair. Cause you're, a, you're a really good athlete. Um, I have no idea why I'm saying it. I'm just being vulnerable and being honest, but what, uh, let's talk about sports and athletics, yeah. which I, I know are still a big part of your life, but what, what's the, when did you start? Where did you start? And let's go from there. Um, so I mentioned mom and dad were swimmers. Um, so I, I think to be fair, the first sport I probably found myself in was swimming and it was at a very, very young age. Um, Mom and dad probably threw me in the pool before I could, I was going to say before I could crawl, but they didn't let me crawl. My dad and his brother, Uncle George, forced me to walk before I could crawl. And it's this whole story about the doctor said it was bad for my development. They had to go back and teach me how to crawl. Anyway, <laughs> um, so they threw me in the pool early and, and swimming um, became a part of my life, you know, from an early age through high school. Um I would agree with you. I don't think I'm a great athlete. I think I'm a good athlete at a variety of sports. And I think it's one of those things which you better be great at a couple of things or good at a lot of things. I definitely fall, I think, more into the good in a few things rather than great at any one thing. Um, so swimming definitely early on threw me in the pool. And yeah. like what age were you going to swim practice? Six, six, five, okay. six. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Started in the tadpoles and then worked my way up. Um and, you know, I, I loved swimming um, until I didn't, you know, it turns out swimming's pretty boring for those of you that know it, um, but I'm pretty hard it, at the same time. <laughs> it's it's pretty hard at the same time. I, I mean, unless, you know, you grow up doing it, then it becomes pretty easy. I, sure, I do think sure. it's one skill, you know, Kira's swimming now and Brady's not, and he's going to regret it because I see my friends now when we're in, you know, a lake or an ocean and they just look unsafe in the water. And I'm like, God, that's such a mess, <laughs> you know? Uh, so swimming early on, um, and then obviously all the sports you play as a young kid growing up, I played them, you know, all baseball, basketball, soccer. Um, I, I would say when I think back on my sporting career in totality, the things that stick out to me is, you know, I think I played a lot of rare sports and had exposure to a lot of rare sports from swimming to, you know, I got into water polo around sixth grade and played competitively from sixth grade through high school. Um, and then in college, you know, obviously a swimmer, you know, you naturally, you know, transfer to rugby and I played rugby for four years in college. And then very a few natural. years after it's very, very natural, natural transition. Yeah. It is. 
Um, and so I had a lot of exposure to different sports. Um, like I said, I wasn't great at any, I think I was okay at a majority of them. And when I think back, you know, a lot of sports has to do with fitness and fitness has been a part of my life, whether I knew it or not, since I was born and I'll tie it back again to mom and mom, you know, dad as well, but mom has always been and still to this day is the fitness freak. Um, I can remember mom, you know, always running, always like, if I think back to what my mom wore when I was a kid, it was either she was wearing a running outfit or scrubs, right? That's just how I think about mom. And so I think, you know, we talk about as kids, we kind of, you know, take on the personality, we take on the characteristics, we take on the traits that our parents have. And fitness was definitely instilled in my life through mom. And I look at all four stone kids now, and we all still have fitness as a part of our life. And with that comes sports. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but. Yeah. I mean, my, the highlight for me was the, the natural transition from swimming to rugby. <laughs> so I, I will ask a question again. I'm more and more wanting to have your mom on the podcast maybe someday, but um, I believe there's been a generational shift in adults, call it 40 somethings and 50 somethings where at least my parents kind of network and friend group there were very few people that worked out that routinely sure. fitness just wasn't and it and for a lot of reasons, right? It's, it's all over the press and it's all, you know, there are gyms everywhere on every street corner. What, why was your mom a fitness person, a generation early? That's a good question. Um, I, I, I bet if we asked her the question, it had to do something with, you know, going to nursing school and just being involved in, seeing people that weren't doing well. Now she was definitely on the pediatric side, but she had a knowledge of health and wellness. Um, look, I think like a lot of us that truly care about fitness, your wife being one of them, and sorry that I brought her up on the podcast. I don't know if that's illegal or frowned upon. Oh, I think I think she's going to love it. Yeah, well, um, I think a lot of us just understand the correlation between a happy life is a healthy life and a healthy life requires hard work and fitness is hard work. And I agree with you. There has definitely been a trend in trying to figure out the quickest and the fastest way to get sure. fit, um, which I think probably is a problem when it just takes consistency. Um, but I think mom just, you know, I don't think she was surrounded with it growing up. You know, that was generations before anyone really worked out for the most part. I think mom just understood that, you know, one, she loved it. I think that's probably the driving force behind it. And, you know, growing up as a swimmer, that's actually one thing I will say. If you are a swimmer, the one thing you do for the rest of your life is get up early. And when you get up early, you have more time on your hands. When you have more time on your hands, you can find more times for things like fitness. And it's because, you know, practices are early in the morning, swim meets on Saturdays, you're in the pool at 6.30 a.m., and I, I think about my friends that swam competitively, whether it was a young age or high school, and most of them still tend to be morning people as opposed to night people. I'm clearly a morning person and not very much a night owl. Um, but I do think that you know, that's probably one of the reasons why mom gravitated towards fitness. It's genius. I've never, I mean, I, I know that it's kind of like figure skating. You always hear they go to practice at 3.30 in the morning and I'm, you know, I'm sure those there's a high correlation to happiness and success with those kind of folks that sure. do those things early in the morning. I, I'm in, I'm in total agreement. Um, so just to put a bow on, on the sports side. So it, what did you play in high school? Mm -hmm. So 
I swam for four years. I played water polo for four years. I played basketball for two years. Um, I did two weeks of wrestling when the wrestling coach was grabbing kids in the hallway, looking for kids to, you know, train with his wrestlers. So I did that for two weeks and then realized this isn't for me. Awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, that was it. Okay. Yeah. And then you continued on. We'll get to college later, but yep. you did you did continue on with athletics. I did. Yeah. You can elaborate a little bit. We'll do a teaser. Okay. So yeah. Um I mean, so went to Arizona State for college for four years and um was looking for my in, looking for my community, my friend group. And I had a couple of friends from high school for my graduating class that I was friends with that went to college with me. <clears throat> and we we rushed a couple other fraternities. No surprise. I mean, I think we rushed every four years to go to some fun parties, but we um we found rugby and we knew nothing about rugby. We knew that we went to a party they were having and they seemed like normal, fun, bombastic, outgoing personalities, some with accents because they were from different parts of the world, like England and South Africa and Australia. And they were incredible guys. And so we started playing rugby. Um, like I said, played, you know, three, four years at Arizona State, then played three years for the Olympic Club uh, back in San Francisco. So continued to play rugby. It's an incredible sport. It took me to different parts of the world. So for that, I'm forever grateful. Um, incredible sport. Well, okay. So I just learned something. So let, rather than worry about chronology, let's peel the onion back a little bit. So first okay. of all, let everybody know, um, I'm sure when they, you say the word Olympic, they think you're like lighting the torch in the LA Coliseum. Correct. Shed light on the Olympic club, rugby club. No, well, that's what it, no. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so the Olympic club is a, um, it's a, it's an athletic club, golf, you know, everything you could possibly think of. They have every sort of sports teams you could think of in San Francisco, long lineage, long history. Um, and they have a club rugby team. And it was actually when Olympics, when, rugby was in the Olympics back in the day, the Olympic club was the representing team. Oh, wow. Hence okay. the Olympic club name. Um, and this is affiliated with the Olympic club that if people that follow golf right. from us opens. Okay. Correct. Yep. Um, and so a number of different, you know, <clears throat> colleges make it up. You, you come back from college, you graduate. We had people playing for the club, you know, two or three sides. So two or three teams um, somewhere between, you know, 30, 40, 50 guys on the team at one time from, you know, all different parts of the country, all different parts of the world, really. Um, but an incredible, incredible atmosphere, incredible community of guys um, and something that, you know, I look back on and, you know, in my early 20s, post-college, it was definitely a part of me, a part of my life, a part of my social life, um, helped me with business and finding ins to different careers and whatnot. And so um, an incredible time, for sure. I'm, I'm, I've always been, well, not always, uh, the last decade or so I've been fascinated with rugby because I know you played and I have another good friend who is definitely a badass and will be on this podcast who, um, played rugby at a, at a serious level too. And things I learned from you both. Well, I, I didn't play a serious level. It's, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll, 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 we'll figure that out shortly. Yeah. But, um, there's a tradition, tradition of drinking beer with your opponent after. Yes. Correct. Can you just, for, for yeah, very few people I, know rugby. Yeah, I smile because I do think it is a stigma that rugby is trying to move away from, especially as it becomes okay. a more respected, I'll put in air quotes, Olympic type of sport. 
But yeah, I mean, I mean, look, in college, it definitely has that culture where um, the home team will host the away team after the match for, you know, barbecue, beers, party before you send them on their way. And it was one incredibly unique characteristic of rugby was that you will, you know, I will never use the term go to war because I respect our soldiers too much to say that, but you would go compete against another team. You would sweat, you would bleed, you would get injured. Um, and at the end of the whistle, <clears throat> you would shake hands and you'd give them directions to the rugby house and you would sponsor them for, you know, a party, some definitely beer chugging Olympic competitions. You'd feed them and then you'd send them on their way. And it's one thing that always jumped out at me that was cool about the sport was that you could battle somebody so intensely. And as soon as the whistle blew, you know, you were trying to take care of them. And, and I think it's, it's a part of the culture. There's no doubt. Like I said, I think, I think the sport is trying to move away from that stigma a little bit, but there's no doubt that it's part of who the sport is. Yeah. I think in a, in a world that has to, unfortunately, current day deal with a lot of polarization, mm -hmm. a lot of anger, as I started watching rugby players and learning about that tradition. And then candidly, I mean, you, you, you might maybe a little bit be making it sound like a beer drinking club or something. The rugby world cup just ended a month or so ago. Yeah, I mean, yeah. these are some of the most amazing athletes on the face of the earth, the size, the strength, the speed. It's unbelievable. But I'm with you. I love that they can kind of put their emotions aside mm -hmm. when the, when the buzzer goes off. And again, we're just people yeah. working our way through life. I've always loved that. Um, okay. It's so, an, it's the last thing I'll say, Paul, like it's an international sport that has gotten popular in America. And, and I think when I think about the sport and I think about the people I met from different countries, you don't always get that in sports you play in high school. Like I wasn't going to get that back in, you know, the nineties playing basketball or playing baseball necessarily. Right. So playing rugby at Arizona state, you know, I met guys from, like I said, England, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Wales, like people that I would never, ever, ever have any chance of getting to know without that sport. And it is one of those things. Uh, and you and I kind of saw it when we were in France watching that World Cup game at six sure. o'clock in the morning at the pub. Um, you introduce yourself and you strike up a conversation with someone and you both find out you play rugby it's a, it's an instant relationship builder. And I think that is a fascinating part to the sport. Yeah, no so. doubt. And I, and I think I'm a pretty typical American where I didn't interact with anybody from outside the United States until I was like 35, sure. I mean, almost no interaction. Sure. I think we, we live in, in our little, many of us, mm -hmm. obviously not everybody live in kind of this bubble where we don't experience other cultures and other personality types. And I've never met an Australian that wasn't amazing. I've never met a South African that wasn't amazing. There's a lot of amazing people out there. Right. Okay. So let's, we did a little time, time flash forward. Let's do a time. I don't know what a time flash is, but let's jump back in time a little bit. So um, were you a popular guy in high school? What, what a question. Um, I think so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was a small high school, so it was pretty hard not to be popular, Paul. I mean, I'm guessing anybody that's made it this far would would know the answer is probably yes. What a question. I don't know how you answer that. So yeah, there were 189. This is a place where you don't have to. Yeah, I know. There were, there were 189 kids in my high school graduating class. Um, so I will say we all knew each other really well. Um, I think we all, you know, supported each other. 
I think it is rare that my graduating class, like I said, you know, if I have 15 good friends that I still talk to, I mean, perfect example is we went to my 20 year reunion a couple of years ago and you do the math, it doesn't really add up, but it's COVID got in the way of our 20 year reunion sure. and whatnot. And I remember Kelly, my wife, walking into the high school reunion and knowing more than 70% of the people in the building because she knows all of them from just growing up, you know, dating me through these years because of how close I am to so many people in high school. So I think we were all popular in our own right, but I, I think I was well-liked. Yeah, I mean, I started, well, the second question I asked you about being positive and optimistic, yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that people gravitate toward people like that. And you don't have to be popular to be successful. I'm just, I'm just, um, I, th I think it can be a nice foundation if you learn how to deal with people. Sure. Do you, do you agree with I, that? I 100% would agree. So, um, all right, so let's stick. We, we haven't gone to college yet. What are, what, what mistakes did you make as a, we'll call it as a teenager that you still think about? Um, gosh, quite a few of them. I mean, your, your parents did not ask me to ask you this, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I'm sure they're on pins and needles right now. Uh, no, I mean, well, you know, I'll knock on wood. I don't know if they can hear that or not, but um, I've never been arrested. So I, I think, you know, check that box, mom and dad's success. Um, did I get in trouble in high school? Sure. I, I mean, I think the one thing I think back on is you asked that question, um, times that I was really cruel to Critter. And, you know, I was really mean to him at certain points in my life. High school is probably one of those. And I think back to it um, as something that I regret. Now, do I think it made us stronger and, and created the bond we have now? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, as I'm just kind of here listening to the question and spit bonds, one thing that comes up, you know, the only time I really got into any trouble, like real trouble with the law in high school. And I'm happy to share it. I think it's a funny story was, you know, we were juniors in high school. So we were 17 at the time. And as many 17, eight year olds do, you're interested in drinking. And so we went to Ice Cream and IDs, which is the name of Real Shop. At least it was back then in Mission Street in San Francisco. A real shop? It's a real shop oh, that still a, exists. Okay, okay. Yeah. So ice cream and IDs um, that also doubled as a wedding photography, you know, stand up store. Hold on. All right. Let's pause. It, the name of the sh the real shop, which made me think of fishing, is ice cream and IDs, like Correct. identification. Correct. Okay. Correct. But it's also a bridal photography. Well, they, yeah, they had, you know, photos of grooms and brides in the front window. Okay. The whole thing was a cover. You'd walk in, they'd see a teenager, they knew what you would want, they'd bring you to the back, they'd take your picture. At the time, this is when it took a while to, you know, laminate IDs and what laminate IDs and whatnot. You'd leave for a couple hours, you'd come back and you'd have your ID um, with your fake name and your fake address and your, most importantly, fake birthday that made you 21 or as some of my friends randomly did 32, whatever, however. Nice. Yeah. yeah. They felt like 21 was too obvious. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we had IDs and we used them periodically through high school and we went to Safeway, which... I guess not everyone knows what Safeway is, grocery store. Um, and we were buying beer. And my good friend to this day and I, Dom Russo, um, were chosen to go in and buy the beer for the party that we were at. And so we did. And, you know, we're buying the however many 12ers of Rolling Rock or whatever we felt fancy drinking that day. And the lady knew we were not 21 because we looked like we were 12. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, and she was probably tipped off because my buddy Dom's ID said he was Buck Reed from Montana. So that was probably a giveaway as well. And she took the ID. And instead of us just chalking it up to a loss, we argued that my friend, in fact, was Buck Reed. And that was his ID. And he is 32. And we should have the ID back. And little did we know they had called the police. And so finally, after about five, 10 minutes of arguing, we decided to run out, <laughs> which always is a good idea and jump in the car. And we're about one mile away. So let's just be clear in case Brady is listening. It's not good to run. Um, for fitness. Yes. When you're in trouble, while, never Brady. While, yeah. yeah. Um, and so we got pulled over by the cops about a mile away from the house and they had Buck's ID and they called our parents. Luckily, Mike and Kathy were on vacation, which they never left us on vacation, but they were gone and we had a babysitter. And so the babysitter, Katie Anderson, who was my swim coach, um, came and picked us up. And besides Buck or Dom, as he's really known, Dom had to go home with his parents and um, Katie told my parents about it. And going back to about the discipline, like, I don't even remember being grounded for that, Paul. Like, I'm sure I was. Like mom and dad are probably like, you idiot, you were grounded for three weeks. Don't tell people we didn't discipline you as a kid. Um, I don't remember it. Um, but I do remember, you know, that feeling of, oh man, this could be bad. Right. You know, the cop sirens are here. It's night. We're standing in front. This is what you hear about. Um, and I think it scared me straight a little bit. You know, did we still have fun and still get into trouble from time to time? Sure. But nothing really stands out in those, you know, formative kind of teenage years other than that. Okay. Good. You've been, like you said at the beginning, you've been pretty lucky. Yeah. Um, so it, also on top of viewing you as a sneaky good athlete, <laughs> which I, again, I apologize for, um, I've got to know you as somebody who has, who has very serious work ethic. What is the source or the genesis of your work ethic? And then we'll start, we're, we'll start peeling back that onion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel like I've talked about mom a lot and certainly being a pediatric cardiac ICU nurse, like her work ethic was second to none. Um, and maybe only to my dad's and dad was, is <laughs> dad is someone that continues to work to this day. Um, self-employed owns his own, uh, tile interior kind of design company, um, works with contractors, has his own construction company, works with architects. Dad works still to this day, six, seven days a week. Um, I will say we always talk about, you know, finding something you love and making that a career. I, I think my mom and dad were very lucky that they actually found that. They found their niche. And, you know, dad didn't graduate college, um, but he was always someone, again, going back to Grandma Marie, that knew the value of hard work and knew what it would take to raise four kids um, and a family in, you know, arguably one of the more expensive places in the world, in the Bay Area. Um, dad is always someone, when I think of hard work, I think of dad. Uh, he, you know, is up early, you know, 5 a.m., going to job sites, going to the office, meeting with clients. Um, I can't tell you, Paul, like the amount of people that rave about my dad as a businessman, but more so as a human being is second to absolutely none. He is the person I aspire to be. He is the grandfather we all hope we can be to our kids' kids. 
um, but focusing really on the work ethic that he instilled in all of us was, you know, because he was self-employed, he had the ability to employ his kids, right? On summer breaks, on winter breaks. If we were home for an extended weekend, we could always go work at dad's shop or work with dad and he would find things for us to do. So when did that start with you? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> definitely early on, um, definitely, you know, high school. Um, I remember him employing me and another buddy of mine um, on summers. And it was always one of these things where um, we had flexibility with him. I don't even think we worked on Fridays, but we worked four hours or four days a week. And, you know, the job started at 6 a.m. And so we were up early, you know, for the job. And it's all we it's all I knew was, you know, the workday starts early. And again, going back to that swimming mindset and going back to just getting up early. It's all I knew. Mom being a nurse up early. Right. Dad with his job up early. And so getting up early, like well before 9 a.m. was always ingrained in us is that is what a career looks like. And so I know I learned a ton from dad about working long hours, but more so about finding the balance between work life and family. And like I said, when we started this podcast, I find myself incredibly fortunate that they found those careers they love that didn't move us all over the world, that, you know, we were able to be raised in the city that we were born in. And not only that, I, I think back you know, now I really think about it as someone that has a career and does do some travel for work. Whenever I think back to, you know, we were talking about this earlier about sports. I can't remember a game that mom and dad weren't at. I'm sure they weren't at a ton of games, right? Because life gets in the way. But um, when I think back to games, I always remember mom and dad there and not just mom and dad, you know, mom and dad and grandma, grandma Marie, grandma Mary. And again, going back to that whole family dynamic, you said it, that being the DNA or the backbone of the Stone family, and it certainly is. Um, I find it incredibly beneficial that dad and mom taught us the value of an honest day's work, a long day's work, but making sure you always found time for family and for friends. And so when I think about work ethic, I don't just think about work. I think about the work it takes to be a great father and friend and employee or employer or whatever way you go. So um, you did leave Marin yep. County, which as a reminder is north nestled. of San Francisco, yeah. nestled in the foothills, Correct. Um, close to the Golden Gate Bridge. Sure. Um, you made your way to Tempe, Arizona. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Um, so I applied to two colleges. And so um, one was for water polo. And so I was being recruited to the University of Redlands, which is somewhere near Palm Springs. I don't know because I never visited because unfortunately I visited Arizona State first. Ah, okay. So maybe that's where we'll start. And um, I'm going to start with this. And people are going to say, oh, he's saying that because he went to Arizona State and the stigma Arizona State has to even to this day. But it's true. And I don't know why Grandma Mary, my mom's mom, said this, but she said, and I just told my mom this, you know, last weekend when I was with her and she never knew that Grandma told me this. She said, John, and I've told you this, John, college is about experiences, not education. <laughs> now, Grandma Mary, side note. We're, we're, lo we're losing listeners, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're, running, they're running for the foothills. Grandma Mary is an incredibly, was an incredibly bright woman. 
And so whether she said that because she knew I was going to Arizona State or not, I don't know. Um, but she said it. And it could not be more true than what I look back now. And, and I'll get to Arizona State here in a second, Paul. But I think if we think bigger picture about the emphasis that was placed on us as kids to go to a good college and probably now more than ever, and you're going through this now with Sam, it is insane the amount of stress and pressure that is put on these kids to go to a college, a good college. And I look back at all of my friends now, and I don't know if I can think of one off the top of my head that is actually doing a career that is tied to what they majored in. Whyever that, for whatever reason that happens, it happens. So going back to Arizona State, um, Buck Reed, Dom Russo and I both applied to Arizona State. And I remember um, we went on a visit um, and I remember our dads pulling us aside at one point and saying, guys, you should go here. <laughs> and, you know, I, I definitely think being raised in Marin, going to a Catholic school for 12 years, I told you, you know, 189 kids in my graduating class. Um, I think it's safe to say there was not much diversity in my life at that time. Going to ASU and just being blown away with the size and the scale and the diversity, like that is definitely something that I was drawn to. As soon as I stepped foot on that campus, I don't know if I could pinpoint what it was specifically, but I was drawn to it. And it wasn't that hard for me to make the decision. Um, now, like I've joked, you know, I don't think I wrote an essay for Arizona State. In fact, I know I just applied online and it was almost getting like the out of office reply, you know, submit your application. Congratulations, you've been accepted to the class of 2004. Um, but I spent four years there and it was the time of my life. I learned an incredible amount, not only about growing up, you know, in your early, you know, late teens, early 20s, but I learned a lot about friendship. I learned a lot about finding the balance between real life and social life. Um, and, you know, like any college, I think if you can get out of college in four years, you're doing something right. And it's good advice. I, I think especially if you're in a place like Arizona State where temptation is at every turn to try and not go to class and not fulfill your responsibilities or your commitments, there are plenty of excuses to do that at ASU. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I'd recommend it to anyone I talked to because I had a phenomenal, going back to Grandma Mary, a phenomenal experience over those four years. So Buck Reed went with you? Buck Reed did go with me. So let's get a little bit granular. So you leave the bubble that you, you know, that kind of sounds, you know, you said no diversity, we'll call it a somewhat homogenous place and sure. you're in and bam, you're in this big, on the outskirts of this big city, big multicultural impact. What did you, what are the two or three things that stick out? Um, well, first of all, were you nervous? Absolutely. Okay. What, what did, what did that feel like? Um, well, I mean, look, I, I think if we're all honest, we're all a little nervous going into college, moving away from something that is familiar to you for so long. And this is your first real chance, you know, to step outside of your comfort zone and get uncomfortable. And, you know, I certainly got uncomfortable early on at Arizona state. Now, I think I was incredibly fortunate to have a couple of friends like, you know, Buck, um, <laughs> that I got to go through this journey with because, you know, there were a few of us, there were about four of us from my graduating class that ended okay. up going to Arizona State. So 
we could kind of bond together in those early days while we kind of found, you know, friends in the dorms and friends through the rugby club and friends through class and whatnot. Um, but to answer your question, was I nervous? Absolutely. Um, and, and what kind of stood out to me was just, I mean, I had never seen something so large in terms of scale. And, you know, I do think going back to the discipline of my parents, so much of what they did set me up for success at a place like Arizona State where um, I didn't have super strict parents. And so I always felt like I had the freedom to have the opportunity to choose right over wrong, right? I had a curfew in high school that was midnight, right? When a lot of my friends was 10 p.m., which probably resonates as to why they slept in my house and not their houses. But sure. midnight was the curfew, but it was never enforced. And, and Paul, I mean, my parents never enforced the midnight curfew. I don't think we ever came home past midnight. And I think it was that respect, but also that freedom to really make our own way. And I know my, my mom and dad and I talk about this, um, that it set us up for success because we weren't like some of my friends who got to college and had super strict parents and didn't know what to do, right? Didn't know what to do with this newfound freedom. And they ended up getting in trouble because of it, right? And so the genius in my parents' parenting model around setting up, you know, kind of guardrails instead of roadblocks, mm -hmm. I think really set me up for success. I like the, I like, I'm going to write that down. I'm making a lot of notes. Um, guardrails over roadblocks. So what, describe yourself as a college student and I'll give you a second to think about it. I think if, if the vast majority of us are being honest with ourselves, the experiential part of college is the key thing sure. that that propels you mm -hmm. out into life. And yes, if you're going to become an engineer or whatever, the educational part, a doctor, of course it matters yeah. a ton, yeah. but I, I call it life on training wheels. And I'm thinking about it a lot because I have an 18 year old son that's, that's looking and yeah. you're right on the pressure. And I think I have some advice for people on that. We can, we can talk about that well, some other time. I need that. Yeah. But um, yeah. What kind of, what kind of college kid were you? Um, I, I was a kid that, barely missed class. And, and I think my college friends are probably sitting back and laughing now, but if they really think about it, it was true. I, I loved going to campus because of the people you would see, the friends you would see. And although Arizona State, you know, 65, 75,000 undergrads, um, it did have a small feel to it. You know, everyone populates in certain areas and whatnot. And I loved being a part of that. Um, I loved being on campus. And so I very rarely miss class. And I think it was, you know, my parents I knew were paying an out-of-state tuition for me. And it's something, again, that I go back and think about how fortunate I was in terms of yeah. not racking up student debt that I was able to go to college for free on the dime of my parents. And it's something I will forever be grateful for and something that I hope Kelly and I can do for Brady and Kira as we work our way through this. Um but I took responsibility in that. And I know that at the end of the day, my parents just wanted me to apply myself. And so going to class was check the box. Um, something I always took advantage of was office hours. I don't even know if they do that anymore. Um, but many of the professors at our, at our institution, right, at Arizona State offered office hours. And I would try and go to those as much as I possibly could. Call it a kiss ass. I swear. You can definitely, we are, we are not regulated here. So, <laughs> um, 
I, I enjoyed again, just interacting with people. And, and I felt like the best way for me to be successful was to be known in class. And a lot of the classes were large lecture halls. And so I thought an advantage for me was to one, be present in class and, and two, make sure that, you know, the professor knew who I was. And so it's, it's, you know, you ask who was I as a student? I was someone that I certainly, Paul, applied myself more in college than in high school. And it showed, you know, my GPA was much higher in college than it was in high school. And I attribute that to just growing up. Right. Well, and, and a few, I mean, you and I both said many times to each other, and I'm sure others, it's not rocket science. Yeah. You went to class, you went to office hours. I mean, yeah. ju just, you know, you're doing the basic things, the blocking and tackling that, that pay off down the road. Um, so, okay. So I, we, we are feeling you become a little more serious as an early adult. You just said you, you regretted your high school GPA a little bit, but you, you made up for it in college, yep. which I think is the, is the, if you're going to go one better sure. than the other, that's, sure. that's the place to do it. So what, what do you um, go back to your first memory, whenever it was about you needing to reckon with the fact that you're going to go into the real world? Um, gosh, I mean, look, I, I remember, um, I remember graduating and I remember graduating in four years and not all my friends did. Not all of my close friends at Arizona State did. They stayed on for another semester or a fifth year because they didn't, whatever, they didn't have enough credits to do it. But I do remember graduating and um, being hit with, well, now what? So not before that. Not really. Interesting. Okay. You know, I I think I tried to live in the moment, which was easy to do at Arizona State when you're, you know, surrounded with incredible everything. Yeah. Um, I don't think it really hit me until right around graduation, which was, okay, now what? Now, I did know, Paul, like we talked a lot about Marin County. I knew I wanted to go back. And so that's where I found myself. Um, I do think, and this is probably worth, you know, another podcast series or whatnot. I do think we go to college too young in the United States. I just, I feel like, you know, you graduate at 21, 22 years old and you're still so young from a career standpoint that I think a lot of us um, enter jobs where we're entering jobs and not looking at a career right out of college. And that's certainly where I found myself was Moving home, okay, dad, let me come work for you full-time while I try and figure out where I want to live and what I want to do. And um, so I did that. So did you and your mom and dad have conversations along the way at all in college about potential career paths? Uh, I'm sure we did. If we did, they don't jump out at me. Um, I, I know, you know, I take that back. We did talk a little bit about um, you know, I went to the School of Human Communications, Arizona State. So I took a lot of classes around public speaking, broadcasting, journalism. Um, I did a short internship at ABC7 News um, in Phoenix, Arizona, my senior year. Um, side note, it was an internship for a show called Sonoran Living. The target audience was 50 to 75-year-old women. So, you know, that's for what it's worth. Um, but I did have definitely an interest in media and broadcasting of some sort. Um, and I know mom and I and dad and I talked about that a little bit. And then the reality of it is that's 
incredibly hard to break in into. And I didn't have an in. I didn't know where to even start to try and look at that avenue. And before I knew it, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to move home. I'll figure it out. Worked for dad for a year, bartended for a year. And then all of a sudden you're into your mid twenties and you're really starting to look for the next, you know, career for yourself. Okay. So let, let's pull that thread. So graduation comes, Yep. you're feeling the real world, maybe with its hand out, ready to smack you around a little bit. Like sure. we all, we all get to. So you went back to Marin mm -hmm. and did what? Worked for dad. Okay. Full-time. Um, what, what was your job? <clears throat> so at that time, still to this day, but dad, part of dad's, um, company, he had a slab yard. And so for those of us that don't know, a slab yard is, you know, huge pieces of stone, whether it be limestone, granite, you know, you name it. And it's, you know, you take these huge pieces of mountainside that they pulled out from all over the world and you cut them into the countertops that you see, the tile that you see in your bathroom and whatnot. And I was kind of put, you know, second in charge um, of working there. And so most of my days were spent with meeting with clients and pulling out these huge pieces of slab and laying out these people's kitchens with them. So sitting here and saying like, okay, you like this section of the stone, let's take the dimensions of your countertop, let's mark it out with tape, okay? This is what it would look like. This is where we'll put the seam, this is where the sink will go. Um, and I did that for a year and it was great. And I enjoyed it and, um, you know, I think it was, probably the first early sign to me that I enjoyed the flexibility of that job and not being tied to a desk. And I didn't have a mom or a dad that was tied to a desk. So I never knew that career. I knew being on your feet and working with people is what they both did. And it's definitely what I gravitated towards. And it's still to this day, it's what I kind of do. That's fascinating. And I had no idea <clears throat> that this is, I love this. So, um, did your dad give you much training to be the number, the COO of the, of the slab yard or was it kind of go figure it out? Uh, well, yeah, dad certainly did, but there were, you know, many people at that in the slab yard that taught me a lot about life, about speaking Spanish, about interacting with people. Um, it was a great, great, great education in interacting with customers. Okay. Um, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you what you're two thinking about that 12 month period. Yeah. Your first real job, fair to say. Sure. Uh, yeah. Not you, first job, but first. Well, we're yeah, going to get sure. to your first job. Okay, sure. Yeah. Sure, so sure. Um, two big takeaways that, that you still carry with you today from that year and that job. Um, an interest in interacting and helping other people, for sure. Um, whether it be, you know, even laying out someone's kitchen, like it's a big decision they're making for their home and the biggest expense and whatnot. And I love the, the personal interactions that I had doing that job. Um, and second, you know, it introduced me to coffee, but more so it was, it was the, uh, the first time I was introduced to coffee, but it was because, you know, it was, you had to be at the slab yard at six 30 and at six 30, you know, my dad's, you know, number two would be there with my cup of coffee for the morning. And, so I, the, the second takeaway would be you have to get up early to be successful. Amazing. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, okay. So that happens over the course of a year. So let, let's, let's check a box. So the first job you had where you received a paycheck was. So um, it's being debated in the stone household as we speak. Oh, nice. Um, 
Let's clear it up. Well, yeah. So I think it was teaching swim lessons at Marinwood community pool. Um, I remember doing it. Mom does not remember me doing it. So that's where the disconnect is. So the one first job we could both agree on was when I walked into a supermarket. It's called Bell Markets. It was like a, you know, smaller version of a Safeway. And I filled out an application to be a, you know, bagger slash janitor and got the job. Um, my mom reminded me almost didn't get the job because I was worried about passing a drug test, even though I never did drugs really in high school. But she was like, you came home with your friends and you took a day off of school and you had to drink this weird tea. And you told me it was for fitness. But really, I think and I was like, yeah, that's because you know, my friends had hot boxed a car and I had the side effects of it. And I had to take this drug test for Bell Market. And so I drank this magical tea that was supposed to flush out your system uh, this conversation just happened on Sunday and she was, you know, looking at me like I was crazy. Um, anyway, fast forward, I got the job at Bell Markets as a bagger. Um, I don't know why I applied for the job, Paul. Even And, and you were how old? I thought about 16. Okay. I, I remember driving to work. Um, now, it was definitely a W-2 job, obviously. So I believe I got a paycheck every two weeks. If I got eight paychecks, Paul, that would definitely be an overestimate. You know, I, I think I worked there two months. Yeah. Mom agrees. Um, but there was something about wanting to work, wanting to have a paycheck, wanting to have a responsibility that I know drove me to apply to be, you know, an employee at Bell Market. Mom and dad were not driving me to do this whatsoever. And so when I look back, I do think I've had obviously through mom and dad's learnings, but I do think I've had this intrinsic desire to want to work, to want to hustle, to want to grind. And um, that's how I got my first job, Bell Markets. Beautiful. Okay. So you're 23, mm -hmm. you're leaving dad's yard mm -hmm. and let's, let's turn so, the page. Yeah. So at that point, this was a year later when the majority of the remainder of my friends graduated college and <clears throat> when did buck graduate let's put him on buck the graduated a year later a year later five okay. year I, i'm kind of not i don't know buck but i would have guessed that it adds up and tell him i apologize for saying that to he, millions of people he loves it he's gonna love we've talked about him this much <laughs> it's just um, a great name it's a great name <laughs> um so we four of us buck included moved into um 871 greenwich street in san francisco in the north beach district which was our, our first stint into, you know, kind of living on our own post-college. Mm -hmm. um, you know, dad, Mike had to co-sign the lease because obviously none of us of had any sort of, you know, credit or jobs to show that we could pay a monthly, you know, rent. Um, we all worked in the service industry, which I do think this is an important takeaway and something I'll pass down to my kids is, um, I think it's essential at some point in a young person's career to work in a service industry, restaurant, bar, you sure, name it, sure. just the lessons you learn, the rudeness you experience, the patience you have to instill. There are so many learnings, I think, in working in that industry. Um, fortunately for me, um, we knew the family, the Aliotos, that owned the famous Aliotos restaurant in Fisherman's Wharf. 
and they have a sister restaurant underneath the Alioto's famous restaurant called Nona Rosa's. And I got a job as a bartender. So I bartended there for a couple of years. Um, another piece of advice is never, ever, ever work in the service industry in a tourist location because the tips are horrendous because international people traveling do not tip. It's not part of their culture. And so I learned a ton when it came to that aspect of, of the, the industry. So um, that said, I worked there for two years. Um, I loved bartending again, like a job where I got to be on my feet. I got to interact with people constantly. I got to meet an incredible amount of people from not only the employees that I worked with and the servers who were some of the harder working people I've, I've ever met. Um, but you get to meet people that decide to sit at a bar and have lunch or dinner rather than sit at a you know table with a white tablecloth. And so I loved that. My three roommates all worked as waiters or one as a bouncer um, at a nightclub. And, you know, back then, Paul, like the, you were focused on making enough money to pay rent and have enough to go out. And, and that's what life was for those next two to three years was working in that industry to make enough money to have a social life. So you've talked a lot about waking up early being a big part of things. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you didn't have to do that no. during this two year period. So how, how was your, how were you thinking about where the journey ahead? If you were, mm -hmm. um, you know, going from this early morning, tough, little bit of labor job, bartender obviously is laboring too, but different kind of job. And now, Absolutely. you know, you spend two more years. So now we're up to like age 25. So what are you, what's your mindset around what's going to happen to John Stone as a, as a career or as a professional? Yeah, I, th I think it was the first time, Paul, in my young career where I was really focused on money. And I have learned to not let that be, you know, in my top three, you know, over the last decade of building my career. But back then it was, okay, this is the priority. Like eventually I'm going to want to, you know, meet someone, move in with them, move out of this, you know, we called it the hostel that we lived in because there was always friends living in you know, coming in, staying with us. Um, I think it was the first time in my career where I really thought about the value and the importance of making more money. And I knew, you know, making minimum wage and getting very poorly tipped out each night was not sustainable. And so that's when I really started to put my feelers out there for what is my next job? And um, again, I found myself leaning on a friend to get me an interview um, at a company. And this was a buddy that you know, one of my best friends still to this day, met him in high school, played rugby with him at, at Olympic club. And he was working at a, you know, property management firm. He was working in the division that rented apartments. So he was out driving around San Francisco all day, showing apartments and signing leases. And he's like, John, you'd be great at this. Let me get you an interview. And that led to my next career. So before we get into that, yeah. is there advice looking back mm -hmm. that you wish you had been given at e any of these key steps as you're finishing college, as you're working at the slab yard, yeah. Yeah. as you're working at the the <clears throat> fame, uh, the bar under the restaurant that you didn't get, that you wish you could pass along or that you, sorry, that you wish you could have received and potentially pass along? Yeah, I, I think so if I think about advice I'll give to our kids, it's really, I feel like I wasted a few years 
going from job to job and not really thinking about my career. And that might not even be a fair sentiment because back then I didn't even know what I wanted my career to be. But I think if I could go back and ask my parents for more advice, it would be sit me down and help me focus on what I'm good at and job opportunities that you think, you know, might resonate with me. And I just don't think I took the initiative to do that because back then it's not how I was thinking. Yeah. It's not how I was programming myself. So I think that's something I, I think back on that I wish, I wish I wouldn't have worked for my dad for a year, even though I learned a lot. I wish I probably wouldn't have been a bartender for two years, although I learned a lot. I wish I could have taken those three years and transformed it into the career that I now have. So fair point. Good, good. I appreciate your answer. I'm also going to go out on a limb and say that there were some pretty heavy duty things you learned during that three year period no doubt. That, that are part of your life every day. Fair. Sure. Absolutely. Um, okay. So property management in San Francisco, big, if you haven't been there, big city, loud city, like this, you're, you're living the dream. You're, yep. you're in the city trying to make a paycheck, but now we're moving on. Yep. It was an incredible, incredible journey. And I, Worked there for, gosh, I want to say I was there for five, six years, something like that. Um, so this is going to side rail us and I don't want us to, but it is the place that I met Kelly. I and that's that. why it will always be near and dear to my heart. Of course. Let's, I'm sure we'll get to her and I could dedicate a whole podcast to her. But uh, so I remember, you know, interviewing, getting the job. Okay, you are now a real estate agent without a real estate license and you're not selling homes, you're renting apartments under the city apartments was the name of the company umbrella. And what did that mean? Well, it was the first time that I was exposed to true sales where, you know, you, you, you eat what you kill. And I was paid $500 for every apartment I rented. Um, and then there were bonuses for, you know, getting to a certain number. I think it was eight to 10, something like that. Um, but it was really, my, like I said, my first venture into sales. And it was, hey, come in in the morning, post your ad on Craigslist with the pictures that you've taken of the vacant apartment, and then start to field calls, go meet people at the apartments and sell them in the apartment. And I mean, Paul, I loved it. I loved it because again, you know, I didn't even realize this until we've been talking about it so much, but just interacting with people, interacting with a lot of young people and parents moving into the city. I, I could resonate with those people. Um, I could set my own hours. I could set my own days. I was driving around the city, just working as long and, and as hard as I wanted to. Um, one advantage I had that I quickly realized was I was always one of the first people into the office. I would get into the office at you know 637 and start posting my Craigslist apartments, um, trying to think that, okay, if someone wakes up at eight, I want my postings to be there first, which means I have to get there early, which sets up nicely because I don't mind getting up early. So it was an advantage I had. Um, but like I said, I did that for two or three years. And then um, a couple of people, Kelly included, were asked to kind of form this property management team where you were no longer responsible for the leasing of the apartments, you were responsible for the buildings themselves. So you were responsible for setting the market rent of the vacant apartments, for the renovations when someone moved out of an apartment, whether that apartment needed to be renovated or not, 
You're responsible for working with the you know leasing team to make sure they understood the value the, the, of the building, of the neighborhood, of whatnot. You're responsible for you know hiring the manager for a certain size building that would live there, that would take care of the maintenance. You're responsible for hiring the construction company that would do the renovation. The point being, it was a huge amount of responsibility that they handed to us, six or seven of us in our mid-20s with zero experience in property management. And I think it taught me a ton about empowerment. Um, now, they weren't paying us a lot. So that's probably how they looked at it is we can get these people working for cheap to sure. do this job. And it was an incredibly hard job. Um, but it was my first real exposure, now that I think about it, um, to working with a team and building a culture and building friendships in the work environment that have obviously led me here today. Um, but I think it's something that the <laughs> City Apartments was an incredible company. You know, they over leveraged themselves on the buildings they bought. So when we saw the financial crash in the real estate market, we saw them default on loans. So I also learned a ton about that market dynamic of, of borrowing in terms of bridge loans and whatnot to finance buildings. And then when the bottom fell out, the crash and how quickly it crashed was, you know, an experience again, that I'll always remember and something that, you know, shaped me who I was, shaped my career for sure. And enabled me to, you know, take my next step into my next career, which I'm still at now. Um, but yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal experience, a lot of hard work, a lot of, you know, trouble and a lot of problems that I would probably whine about back then. But when I think back of the experience I had now, it definitely has to be one of overwhelming, you know, positivity when it so, relates to me. All right. So real quick, yeah. I want you to grade yourself. What grade do you give yourself for your year in the slab yard? Uh, B. B. Yeah. And um, I can only imagine how good of a bartender you were, but what, what grade? Well, if we're grading on tips, it was an F. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, I was a good bartender. Yeah. Yeah. I, would I, I knew how to make drinks and talking to people obviously came naturally and, and I liked it. So yeah, a, a, a. Okay. And then you, I assume you only got the, the larger role because you did well yep. as a, as you brokered apartments. Yep. So that five, six year period, you give yourself a B B. Yeah. Okay. Hard grading or, or do you feel like you, well, I just look at, you know, there were definitely people on the sales team that were much better than me, like just had it figured out and were just more successful than I was. And then there were many people that I did. That's Thor, the dog. Yeah. A little background noise. It's okay. It's okay. Um, there were definitely people that I was, you know, more successful in from a number standpoint. You know, when you're in sales, you know, like there's a scorecard. And so, you know, very well where you sit in the hierarchy right. of your team. And I was definitely towards the top, not the very top, but far from the bottom. So let's walk uh, in tandem. So you you had a big moment happen uh, personally during your time at City Apartments, mm -hmm. which was meeting your your now wife, Kelly, yep. who's a fantastic woman that I'm, yep. I'm very, very fond of. So let's let's hear about her. <laughs> I know we're opening a can of worms. Um, yeah, this is so... I'll give a biased answer. She is the most amazing person I've ever met in my whole entire life. And um, the funny more thing than, is- More than Buck? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. And I even Buck, yeah. even Buck would agree. <laughs> um, so I've told this story a lot of times. And it's funny because, you know, I don't, I know Kelly does not remember us meeting. Um, I remember it, you know, to sound cheesy like it was yesterday. I remember 
the cubicle she was sitting at underneath a staircase. I remember, you know, the red dress she was wearing. I remember, you know, her, her big eyes and the big smile when she was introduced to me. I remember everything about that introduction. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say like, I remember like, oh, this is the girl I'm going to marry. I didn't know that. I was a simple guy back then. I remember thinking this girl is incredible. Like she, I do remember she injected energy. Like I remember meeting her for the first time, like, oh my gosh, this human is energetic and just has such a great positivity to her. Um, so we obviously got to know each other through city apartments. We then, you know, got to work closer together. Um, you know, it took a couple of years, but I started to realize like, okay, this is a girl I have to date. Um, it took a while. You know, I like to think that I was born to do sales. So selling yourself is always one of the hardest things you could possibly do. Um, and, you know, it took, a, we used to call them Sunday fun days where you're out on the bars on a Sunday in San Francisco and you're having some drinks and you're usually a little bit of the shampoo effect. And, you know, next thing you knew, we, you know, had kissed for the first time and, you know, took off from there. What's the shampoo effect? When you wake up a little, you know, hungover is, you said you've never met a, you know, Australian didn't like, they like to call it, you know, you're a bit dusty in the morning. Yeah. Gotcha. I, I've honestly never heard that. Amazing. Shampoo effect. You're a little hungover. You have, you know, the cocktails that you drank the night before and you're yeah. right back into it. I'm with, I'm with yeah. you. Yeah. So, um, very big in Arizona state. You're roaming, you're roaming the city and you just find yourself kissing Kelly. Yeah. Okay, good. So, so love at first sight it, or for you and for me, later for her, for me, for sure. It took a while to get her over that hump. Um, and she will definitely attest it to the age gap now. Um, you know, probably shouldn't tell the age of my wife, although she wouldn't care. You know, she's two years older than me. Um, and that was definitely something that was on her mind when I was 23. Fascinating. And she was not when I was 24 and she was not. And she will tell you, you know, the difference between 24 and 25 to her just seemed like such a big gap that. It took me until my 25th birthday. My 25th birthday is the first time my family met Kelly. And so she came to my 25th, 25th birthday. I introduced her to my mom and dad. Um, she obviously, as Kelly can do with anyone, won them over in a matter of seconds. Um, yeah. And it's all history from there. Okay. So did the financial crisis lead to your departure? No, dating Kelly did. D okay. Dating yeah. Kelly did. Okay. <laughs> I, I say that in jest. I mean, I mean, I think back and um, we were definitely keeping our relationship a bit of a secret because we were working together and not to say it was frowned upon, gotcha. but it was probably frowned upon. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure there were a number of different reasons why I decided to move away from city apartments that it had started to take that downturn and, you know, dating Kelly. And it's just like, I'm ready to move on, um, which, you know, again, led me to another friend with another you know, piece of career advice that he thought I would be good at this industry called medical device sales and help me get an interview. You want me to dive into that now? Absolutely. Well, I know you're the podcast, so I thought there'd be a question. Yeah. I mean, no. hey, I, I'm just giving you the death stare <laughs> yeah. to keep going. I appreciate it. Uh, no, my good friend, Trav, um, he, we were talking one night, I still remember we were on my friend Tony's couch and we were talking a little bit about this career that he'd been doing for the past year of, medical device sales rep for a spine company. 
little neuro-based spine company out of San Francisco called Source Surgical. And he was like, John, it's incredible. You're in the hospital, you're in the operating room, you're interacting with surgeons and nurses, you're on your feet. Um, and again, I, I think those things started to resonate with me, right? Like on my feet, interacting with people, sales. Like at that point, I knew I loved sales. I knew it. Um, and it sounded great. Um, and going back to mom, like I grew up around healthcare, right? Mom being a pediatric cardiac ICU nurse, I, I made a note. I wanted you to remind me to say something about this. I think it's Tim Ferriss and you probably know who talks about measuring his life success by the people that are at his dining room table for dinner or something like that. Yeah. I forget who said it, but it, it's, I love that. Whoever said it, I give you credit because I love it. Um, I think back and I can measure my mom's success as a pediat pediatric cardiac ICU nurse and the impact she had on people by the amount of Christmas cards that come to that house, holiday cards that come to that house between December and January. And the crazy part is, is, you know, if any of you go into your kitchen, your house, wherever you keep your holiday cards, you probably look at them and you probably know 80 to 90% of the people, right? Or you recognize who they are. At least 50% of the cards in Mike and Kathy's home, I had no idea who they were. Sure. And they were the families of the kids that my mom took care of, um, that she became an extension of that family. And so I remember, I remember that resonated with me and it still does. And it was around healthcare and the, the, the service component of it, <clears throat> excuse me, and helping other people. And so when my friend Travis talked about medical device, he talked about, you know, the flexibility, interacting with people, the amount of money you can make. Um, and he was like, John, I think you would be great at it. So I give him a ton of credit because he was the first one that interested me in this whole industry. So fast forward, he helps me get an interview. I get the job and the principal of the company, a guy named Todd Marinchek, who taught me quite a bit, um, said, okay, you're hired. Stanford is 60 miles south of San Francisco. Go get business. And, you know, you asked, dad, did dad, you know, when I worked in the slab yard, give me a lot of instructional manuals and a lot of guidance around how to be successful. Um, Todd did, but he also let me go figure it out on my own at the same time. And as you know, that is an incredibly difficult industry to make a name for yourself and to really break in, especially if you're working with a smaller company that you know about. Um, and I love it. Obviously we'll talk about it, I'm sure here. Uh, I'm still in the industry, um, but it's, I can't even count the number of learnings I have had from this industry. The amount of friends that I will call family, yourself included, um, that I've made along this journey. And it is something that I will forever be grateful for because it, I think it has been my first job that I have had where it has shaped a career and not just a job. Sure. So let, let's um, a little bit for the sake of time, sure. let just give us a, a, that started a dozen years ago, more. Uh, this is about 15 years ago, 15. 14, 15 years ago. Yep. Yeah. So just kind of bullet point us through, well, first of all, like 30 seconds on what medical device sales means and then just the jobs you've had and, and walk us into where you are today. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a really brief version, medical device. I think the first thing people think about is, you know, oh, you're entertaining surgeons and you're doing lunches and dinners and trying to win their business. It's, it's a sales job. And I think that's a lot of, uh, it gets lost a lot of times is that we are selling products and technology that we 
believe and our bias and our belief, but we believe can make a impact in a surgeon's practice to deliver better outcomes for patients, period. That's that's what it is about, but it is a very much a sales job. Um, and sorry, the question was what? Following oh, just, just the, the roles you've had. Yeah, so, yeah. okay. So I was a sales specialist for Source Surgical for <clears throat> you know two and a half years. Um, then I was hired by a company called Nuvasive, um, who I am still employed by technically today. Um, I started as a sales specialist at Nuvasive at, at Stanford Hospital and surrounding hospitals. So you're a sales rep, common Correct. language, yeah. Correct. I'm a sales rep um, in the OR. Um, once again, an industry that you have to get up early for. And if you're not comfortable getting up early, you will not succeed in this industry, right? Sure. Surgery start, you know, predominantly at 7.15 a.m., I lived 60 miles away. You can do the math. I, I was leaving my apartment or house at 5.30 a.m. to get to Stanford each and every day, five days a week at least. Um, so I was a sales specialist for Nuvasive for about five years. <clears throat> then the person sitting on the other side of this microphone um, convinced me at that point that I was, and I'll put it in quotes, destined to do more for people and lead people. And I forget the hogwash that you put on me i think i said born to lead you were it was very dramatic it was were, very very you were born to lead. um and so we like to say you know he fooled me into people leadership and i think it was i don't think i know it was the first real leadership job i had i was the sales director in northern california of a small team about five or six people um was fortunate enough to work alongside some incredible surgeons some incredible teams that really catapulted my career to continue to lead at scale. Um, I was then promoted to become a vice president of sales of a Pacific region, which basically encompassed California and a little bit of Oregon, um, and then promoted again to be vice president of the West region, which encompassed you know various states throughout the last three years, but Alaska, Washington, Oregon, California, Hawaii, Nevada, Arizona, Utah. Um, and just this past February, the company was bought by another incredible company, Globus Medical. And starting Jan 1, I will have a new role as you know VP of Global Professional Education for Globus Medical. Awesome. What was the, when you took over that team of five or six reps and you wake up on Monday morning and now you're a leader, mm -hmm. what were the one or two guiding principles as you for you as you started that job? That's a great question. So um, I think this is an important part of anyone's leadership journey is at some point you are most likely going to have to lead peers. And so you talked about it. You know, one of my my good friends to this day, Neil Ross, was an incredibly successful sales rep. He and I both applied for the job. I got it. He didn't. I had to lead him on Monday. And it's more a credit to people like Neil who, you know, put that behind them, focus on the job at hand, um, help lead me as a leader. Like he did that very much uh, in an incredible way. Um, but I think leading peers is something that it takes a lot of dedication. And to me early on, Paul, and I, and I think even to this day, something that I think resonates with me as a leader of sales teams currently is that I always looked at the my role, no matter where I had been, whether a sales director, a VP of the Pacific or a VP of the West, I tried to look at that role through the eyes of the sales rep because I'd walked in their shoes. I knew their frustrations. I knew their pain points. 
Um, and I think I could not only relate, but I think I could drive an, an incredible amount of credibility um, with those people. So early on, those are the things that I was really focused on besides leading with optimism and trying to build a culture sure. of a team. Sure. Now that's good advice. So when did you and Kelly get married? September. Oh, sorry. Seven, yeah. I what? just realized I put you on the spot. But. No, September 17th, 2011. So we just celebrated our 12 year anniversary in September. Okay. Um, you want me to talk about the real <laughs> So Kelly stayed in the real estate business. She did. For a while. So you two are married and you've made your way back to Marin at this point or city life? Yeah. So <clears throat> um, we got engaged. We got married. We're still living together in San Francisco. Um, we got pregnant with our firstborn. Let me say what my wife would say right now if she were here. Kelly got pregnant. Correct. Yeah, go ahead. That's totally, <laughs> totally fair. Yeah, I, I, I'm a firm believer, right? If yeah. The I, future of, you know, the human population depended on guys giving birth. We would yeah, definitely die true. off very quickly. Um, so Kelly got pregnant. Kelly carried the baby. Kelly gave birth to our firstborn Brady on you know January 5th, uh, 2013. We were still living in San Francisco at the time. So, you know, things that you know, stand out. I still remember that drive to the hospital when her water broke. Um, nothing will prepare you for that as a parent. Agreed. Um, I don't, you know, Kira, our daughter, I'll get to her in a second, brought it up to me. She hasn't seen me cry a lot in life. And I told her, I was like, look, I, I remember crying definitely two times. Uh, once when your brother was born and once when you were born. Obviously, there have been various times after that. But like I said, nothing will prepare you for that. Um so Brady was born, um, side note, and, you know, you talk about a higher being and, and things happening for a reason. Um, going back early on to um, my brother, Nick, that passed away, Nick was born on, on January 5th. Um, so that day was always a day that was incredibly hard for my parents, a day that obviously they always remembered him. They still to this day yeah. go to the cemetery. Um you know, I'll, I say nothing will prepare you to have a child. I can't even imagine how you can be prepared for losing a child. Definitely. Um, Brady was born. And <clears throat> that afternoon, I remember my parents coming in and they're crying and I'm crying. I'm like, I know. And they're like, John, it's January 5th. Like our first grandchild was born on the day that your brother was born. Unbelievable. And so it has gone from a day that still to this day is incredibly sad and hard day for them, but it's also now a day they celebrate because of their love for their first grandchild and Brady. And so you talk about, like I said, a higher being, like, yeah, it's just an incredible, incredible event that I, I, I can't not talk about. Yeah. Um, so you fast forward, if anyone has had a newborn and lived in, you know, a city, it's hard, right? Just not being able to walk out the front door, you know, although we lived in a nice neighborhood and had a park nearby, we knew at that point in time, you know, the time, the clock was ticking for us to get back to the suburbs. Um, and interestingly enough, it wasn't Marin that we were going to. It wasn't, let's go north. It was, you're working south. Maybe we should look south. And it took us two open houses south to realize, no, we need to live in Marin. So, with my dad's help and, and Kelly's great eye for what a house could be, we found a dump of a house um, in 2013, 2014 that we were able to, we were luckily able to purchase, um, had to renovate, 
and moved in a year later when Brady was one. And, you know, a year after that, get this right, Kelly got pregnant again and gave birth to our, our second and our last child, um, our daughter, Kira Marie Stone, who uh, is still, you know, we call her Hurricane Kira. She is the epitome of what a little girl having her dad wrapped around her finger should be. Sure. Um, again, I could talk about Kelly. I could talk about these kids forever and I will do so if you want me to. So what are your, um, you and Kelly are parents. Your kids are fantastic. I love them both. Thank you. What are your uh, key priorities for them? Um, so, and to, to level set <clears throat> their 10 and eight, 10 and eight. Yeah. 10 and eight. Um, there's a number of priorities that, you know, we have for our kids, right. That come from our parents. And, and I can't, I can't mention like raising our kids without mentioning Kelly's parents who I'm incredibly close with, you know, Ken and Vicky are incredibly close with my parents as well. And I think, you know, in a subsequent podcast, it's worth going into the similarities of the Bakers and the Stones and how it made us who we are. You know, I'm the eldest of four girls, the baby. Kelly's the oldest of four, her being the eldest with three brothers. So many similarities, so many great people. Um, but when I think about my priorities for the kids, Paul, it, it's really simple to me. I just want when they are in their teenage years, when they are in their 20s, and more importantly, when they're in their 30s and 40s, I, I pray every night that Brady and Kira are best friends. Um, and if they are as close as I am to Critter, Maddie, and Haley, or Kelly is to Kenny, Matt, and Scotty, then we have done something right. And, and that's going to come through a community of people teaching them about, you know, treating others how you want to be treated, about, you know, prioritizing your friends, about hard work, sure. and grit, all sorts of things. Well, if you get that right, a lot of other things probably fall into place. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You're definitely yep. pushing the the odds in your favor. Yeah. Um, so you both work yep. and you're managing the family unit. Yep. That's how is that? And is there advice? I keep asking the same question because it's something I think about all the time. Is there advice you wish you had about being a city parent, busy? <laughs> um, how about instead of advice I wish I had, I'll give you some advice that I think Kelly and I did really well with. Love it. And I think where Kelly and I, I don't know if it happened organically. I don't remember us really talking about it, but we really treated the marriage, especially when Kira came into our life as a partnership. And we weren't one of these couples that had to take the kids to everything together. It was a let's divide and conquer. Um, and I think the whole idea of, you know, I, I, again, I can't say enough great things about Kelly. She is the person that had, makes me a better person. She is, the, you know, the person I aspire to be. She's so good in so many different ways. And what she has really helped me realize is um, we have a life together and you also need a life of your own. And so I think Kelly has done a great job of really having some incredible friendships with people throughout the years from high school to now a group of girls that she is thick as thieves with um, that help take care of our kids, right? And you know this growing up with two kids, like it takes a family, it takes a community, it takes a village to take care of kids. And it's something that I think we've done really well is, is balance, you know, each having our own social life, having our lives together, 
um, and making sure that we try and divide and conquer because otherwise, like I've, I've seen friends do it where they try and do everything together for every single kid and it's not manageable. Yeah, It's really not. And you see the burnout that can happen. Um, and, you know, I think Kel and I have a phenomenal relationship and I think that's one of the reasons. Yeah. I mean, it's like the ultimate example of quality over quantity and, 100%. and quality goes up huge. So go, go back to um, on a professional side, we kind of breeze through your job, just yeah. honestly, for time reasons, what is the, what is the toughest thing you have had to deal with as a professional, the hardest thing? And what, what did you do about it? What did you learn from it? Oh, well, I, I mean, I, I think, I think anyone that's in a leadership position that had a successful career before that will tell you that the hardest thing we do as leaders is, um, setting false expectations of, you know, setting guidelines for our teams and thinking that they will aspire to what we think they should aspire to. And it's, you know, it's an incredibly tough thing to think about is that you have to lead everybody a little bit differently. And, and I think I learned that through trial and error. Um, and you have to realize that just because you did something one way and it might've been successful, I can guarantee you it's not going to be successful for everybody. And so that ability to tr truly try and lead each individual on your team a little bit differently and motivate them a little bit differently based on their passions and their compassions and what truly drives them, I think is essential. So specifically. <laughs> so I, I think, look, one thing I think I you certainly. You don't have to say names, but. Yeah, yeah. One, one thing I certainly have have looking back, wish I could have done more is to realize um, inefficiencies and probably moved off of someone rather than try and support them longer than I should have. And I think the job as a leader, especially as you lead at scale, you've got to be able to make those hard decisions from a talent standpoint and stop trying to root for someone you like personally, stop trying to continue to pour time and time and time and energy into someone that may never get to the point that they need to be at to be successful in a career. And that's definitely happened to me on a number of occasions that I can, I can think of. And, you know, hopefully I've, I've learned from it and can impart those wisdoms, you know, moving on. Sure. So um, what do you do for fun? I mean, so <laughs> people think it's cheesy. I like, I love, there's nothing more than I love than going to Brady and Kira's sporting events, nothing. And people might say, that's not fun for you. Like it is fun for me. Like I would much rather be at one of Brady's baseball or basketball games than drinking with friends at a sports bar, than running, you know, some sort of race with some competitive friends. Like I just, I can't get enough of it and I love it and I'm passionate about it. And I'm probably one of these crazed dad fans that's blinded to how much I'm embarrassing my children, but I can't help it. Like I'm just so invested like all of us are in our kids sports that I just I love being there and so I love doing that for fun now you know fitness always is something I fall back to and I absolutely love whether you know it's running or swimming biking or whatever it might be I love having something that I wake up every morning and am driven to do from a fitness standpoint not so that I look good but so that I can be like mom and dad who you know are approaching their 70s and are still active and are still fit and are still able to play with their grandparents. You know, I look at Kelly's parents and they can still 
you know, them approaching there and at their 70s, same thing, you know, still going on walks, still playing golf, still part of their grandkids' lives. Like, that's why I think fitness is so important to me now. Well, I think, I mean, there's a lot of research supporting it. Sure. This is a generational shift. It's, there's no better medication that you can take than, than being fit and sure. exercising. I, I firmly believe that. So what are you look at it through a professional lens, personal lens? What are you working on right now? Um, well, I mean, I, I am very passionate about trying to be a little bit better each and every day. So, you know, are there checkpoints that I try and like, I, I'm definitely trying to develop as a person each and every day. And what does that look like? Well, that means, you know, trying to do, you know, daily Spanish lessons, you know, something I learned from mom, daily reading and daily fitness. Um, I think those things are something that I'm always focused on. I'm always trying to read. I'm always trying to stay fit. And, you know, I'm always trying to, you know, improve my Spanish because I think it just leads to so many different other avenues that you can take in your life. Um, other things I'm I'm working on personally is, you know, trying to take my fitness to another level. You know, as you kindly reminded me, I'm in my 40s now. And, <laughs> you know, like we all know, we all know our bodies. And I used to know what it would take for me from a fitness level to get to the weight and where I want to feel each and every day when I wake up. And that's getting harder as I get older. And I'm noticing that. And it's like a punch in the throat, knowing that it takes me longer to recover. Um, and so I'm trying to learn what does my, you know, fitness and, and ability to feel healthy each and every day look like, you know, heading into my 40s. No, I think it's, it's I mean, it's been an underlying tone of ever, everything we're doing here um, or everything we've talked about on the on the Johnstone journey. So um, we're about at the time that we wanted to get to. I could keep talking for a long time and I, I assume you could, too. Um you you mentioned Bob Iger earlier, yeah. and I think you were thinking about a book. I wrote down a book that that you gave me about rugby that I wanted to circle back to both. But you you made a note you wanted to come back to Bob. He's been in the news recently, so you yeah, know, we're not making this political, but right, um, right. He, he's obviously a, a, a <laughs> phenomenal top notch leader. But um, you mentioned him earlier, so yeah, why? I, I I think. Um... I don't think, I know it's the book I have probably gifted the most, which is Ride of a Lifetime, which is the story of Bob Iger. And um, it is an incredible book about leadership lessons in life and in business. And so if you haven't read it, pick it up and read it because regardless of what you think about Bob Iger now, returning to Disney and whatnot, like Paul said, um, it's an incredible story. Um, the second book you mentioned that I gave you called Legacy, which is about about arguably the most successful sports team in history of sports, which is the New Zealand All Blacks, which is a, a rugby club at a, a national club out of New Zealand. Um, and it was all about culture. And I think for anyone looking to build a team culture, there are incredible amount of lessons in that book that you can learn from and more so impart in everyday life that you, you go and, and lead a team with. Yeah. And I, I've read both. I love both books. And I, so many of the things we've talked about today, whether it's bartending or swimming as a six-year-old, all these things are applicable to sure. building a life, which is a nice segue to one of the last questions I'm going to ask you, how do you, and maybe think about this, you and Kelly together, but how do you think about or define success? I mean, to me, it's super easy. Like when I'm older and Kelly and I are older and we're looking at the life we had and, and our kids and hopefully their kids, one, I hope we're all happy. Um, and I think that's 
probably cliche for a lot of people to hear, but if you truly think about how many people are really happy, um, you'd probably be shocked. And I think I'm fortunate right now due to Kelly and my kids and this incredible family unit that I have, um, that I am an incredibly happy person. And I hope I can continue to feel that way, you know, 10, 20, 30, hopefully 40 years from now. You like to use the analogy of sitting in a rocking chair, which is definitely a St. Louis, Missouri, <laughs> because we don't have rocking chairs a lot out here. But when I'm sitting in the rocking chair and looking back on, on my life, I hope Kelly's sitting by my side. I hope we're looking at our kids and our grandkids. And I hope both Kira and Brady are present with their kids. And like I said, they're best friends and their cousins are, are friends. And I hope everyone's happy and healthy. Yeah, I think focusing on and measuring happiness is is very much underutilized yeah. and, and uh, we could all focus on it a lot more. So um, what what have we not talked about or or what would you like to say to the world that you haven't gotten to say yet before we wrap <laughs> things up? I mean, I, I guess if I could have one, if I could give one piece of advice for anyone of any age, and we did not talk about this, um, and it has definitely shaped who I am over the last 10 years. And it's simple. It's be a coach, get involved in your kids or some level of kids, youth sports. Um, I can't tell you the life lessons I've learned. I can't tell you the relationships I've formed with Brady and Kira's friends simply by being involved and being a coach in their sports. And um, here's a secret. You don't need to know your ass from a toboggan when it comes to sports, <laughs> when you're coaching six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, right? Once they get to that upper level, you're going to graduate out and you're going to let the real coaches do it. But my advice was be involved and be a coach at some level. And it's never too late. You can get involved and volunteer in, in the life of so many kids, so many levels. And it's just an incredible way to spend your time. I think it's really good advice. Um, it's a little weird to sit here and have a conversation like this with somebody who's only 41 years old, you know, there's a good argument to be made. You're probably not even halfway done so, with, with life. Um, I think we can call it there and, and right around two hours, hopefully all those friends and all those family members you've been talking about can, uh, can make it this far, but um, this has been amazing for me and I appreciate you joining. So I appreciate you having me. This yeah. is great. It didn't fly by. You're right. It flies by just, just a couple hours. And, and if you listen to it, speed it up. It doesn't even have to be a couple hours, but last chance before we go, anything else that you want to say or hit on? Listen to this at one and a half or two times the speed to make sure you get through it. I don't know if people can handle us at double speed, <laughs> but uh, no, I appreciate you having me. Paul. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, dude. Um, we'll talk soon. Thanks everybody for listening. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.